You know that saying, when the student is ready, the teacher appears. We've all heard that. But many people misunderstand that. They think it means when the student has suffered enough or somehow deserving enough, a teacher like Socrates will appear to guide them or kick them up the path. But I believe what that statement means is that when the student is ready or really paying attention, the teacher appears everywhere. Mm. Welcome to Men This Way, the podcast for every man who seeks to live his deepest purpose in life who's committed to showing up fully and giving his unique gifts to the world. Because if not you, then who? I'm your host and fellow journeyman, Brian Reeves. Brian with a Y, Reeves. Men, this way. Could overthinking be negatively affecting your entire life? Have you ever struggled with a big decision because of differences with an intimate partner? What are the dangers of endlessly comparing yourself and competing with others? Well, in this episode, my guest, Dan Millman, the author of the spiritual classic, Way of the Peaceful Warrior, and I mine these questions and many more for useful insights to make a meaningful difference in your life. Dan Millman is a wise man. Although he's written 17 books, it was his book, Way of the Superior Man, first published in 1980 that made him a household name, at least in the Western spiritual seeker community. I probably read his book in the late 80s when I was a teenager, and his beautiful gift for infusing storytelling with timeless wisdom left me with indelible images that continue to both linger in my mind's eye and inform my daily practice of simple, embodied mindfulness. If you've read the book or you saw the movie starring Nick Nolte, whom I actually got to meet in his own living room once. Yeah, I met Nick Nolte. I sat right next to him in his own living room, although he wasn't very talkative. Well, you'll remember that memorable scene in which the wise sage Socrates throws the young gymnast off a walkway bridge into the stream below as a teaching moment showing the young man what living in the present moment can look like. It's a great scene. And along with the scene where that same gymnast, a little bit later, having taken the lesson to heart, he's in the shower and all his senses are focused on the water cascading onto and down his body. These two scenes have never left me and they continue to flit about my imagination occasionally when I'm walking through the woods or even taking a shower. And I'm grateful to Dan for these teaching stories. And he shares more teaching stories in our conversation today. I invited Dan onto the podcast because I loved his book and because he's just come out with a memoir, Peaceful Heart, Warrior Spirit, which I highly recommend. His journey through life is a fascinating one, particularly in his encounters and time spent with four teachers whom he writes about in his memoir, including a teacher named Bubba Free John, also known as Adi Da, among many other names that he went through over his, his, the, the, the course of his adult life. And he was a controversial spiritual teacher back in the 60s and 70s, whose work I also studied briefly on my journey into the realms of sacred sexuality. So I definitely recommend grabbing Dan's new memoir, Peaceful Heart, Warrior Spirit. This is a juicy episode today between two men who have both had interesting experiences through a lifetime of walking a spiritual path. And as my eternally elder, Dan is. I mean, he's always going to be older than me. And as my wise eternal elder, I'm grateful for the lessons that Dan Millman has imparted to me and others over the years through his books and now through our conversation. And also, if you don't already have it, while you're online grabbing Dan's memoir, pick up my book, Choose Her Every Day or Leave Her, if you don't already have it. Choose Her Every Day or Leave Her is a guide for your transformational journey through the fires of love and intimacy because that's what love and intimacy is for us these days, men and women alike. It is a transformational journey through fire. It's available online everywhere, and uh, Choose Her Every Day or Leave Her is also, it's a profound read for men and women, particularly men and women who are simply ready to thrive in love. And finally, please do leave a review on your podcast app. This is a big endeavor. Uh, I I put a lot of investment of time and energy and certainly love and money 
And I don't do paid advertisements. Uh, I don't do promotions for others unless I believe in them. And even still, I don't get paid for any promotions that I do here. So you can support this podcast by simply leaving a solid review on whatever app you listen to podcasts on. It really does make a difference. So I appreciate it. Thank you. Now, take a deep breath and stay with Dan Millman and I through to the end of this episode of Men This Way. All right, let's dive. Dan Millman, sir, it is a privilege and an honor to have you on Men This Way. Thank you for saying yes. Oh, well, thank you. It's, I look forward to our conversation. As do I. I. You know, I know you've heard this a billion times over the years, and I will have already said this in my introduction as well, but uh, Way of the Peaceful Warrior is a was and is still a a seminal book experience in my own life's journey. I mean, I think I read that when I was a teenager, you know, some thirty years ago. So I'm forty seven now. So to be talking with you right now is truly uh, exciting for me. So thank you again. Sure. So now I'm reading your memoir, and I'm really struck by a lot of. I feel very resonant with you and your life journey of seeking and exploring and all the things you threw yourself into. And I have a question for you about that, because I've often wondered this about my own life. Do you think that you were given a kind of spark of curiosity, like you were born with a spark of curiosity, a spark of, of hunger to, to ask these bigger questions? I don't know if bigger is a silly word, but to ask these big questions and, and to go down all these paths, or, or were you influenced by encounters with adults, mentors, you know, early in your life such that, or maybe a combination of, of, of the two? I've often wondered that about my own life. Was I lucky in some way, or, or uh, you know, what, do you, what, what say you about that? That's a great question to kick off our, our uh, time together. Um, the whole nature-nurture sort of question <laughs> right. regarding yeah. Yeah. this sense of big picture thinking. Um, there, there was a time I remember when I was fairly young into my early adolescence and I began to seek wisdom. Um, I looked up and around and said, what are the rules here? What is life about? Uh, maybe I was in a mood, a particular mood at that, in that moment. But I began to collect quotations. It's been a lifelong hobby. I have over a thousand pages of selected quotations I've gathered over the last 50 years or so. And the first ones I came across, what, what, the first one was from Ben Franklin, a penny saved is a penny earned. And that seemed true to me, a bit of wisdom I could use. But then I came across one that seemed to contradict it, which was nothing ventured, nothing gained. Mm. And, and then I came across another quote that said, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. Mm. And there might, there seemed to be some truth in that. We get in habit patterns, you know, we can, we get set in our ways. Most of us shower the same routine every day, turning yeah. the same direction, for example. Yeah. So maybe there was some truth to that. You can't teach an old dog new tricks, but then you're never too old to learn. Right. And, and then Brian, I heard that um, opposites attract. Now that seemed to be true, except birds of a feather flock together. <laughs> and I kept, I kept I coming it. across these quotes that contradict one another uh, until I came across one that I couldn't find any contradiction for, which was a chain breaks at its weakest link. That was the first time I stumbled across what I came to call spiritual or universal laws. Mm. And their qualities, um, you know, a chain breaks at its weakest link every time. It's consistent. But it's also universal because it's not just about chains, it's about us as well. We break at our weak link, physical, emotional, mental, mm -hmm. spiritual, sexual, social, financial. And so that's, that saying is, it really offers some wise guidance, but it was the first time I came across a law um, because it was consistent and universal. And, and that, that set me kind of seeking and I kept co collecting quotations, bits of pithy wisdom, um, which have power to them. You know, most people don't really appreciate because there's so many quotes that kind of are blah, but the good ones, like Mark Twain's comment, I've had many troubles in my life, most of which never happened. 
And, and we smile at that because that's true for our lives too. Many of our troubles don't actually happen. They're in the past or the future. So anyway, that's kind of a, a longish answer to your question about was I, was I born with it? And I probably wasn't born with it more than anyone else, but yeah. there were some incidents in my life. I, I cover in Way of the Peaceful Warrior in the movie adaptation of that first book uh, where I shattered my leg in a motorcycle crash. And that shook me up. Yeah. And it, I started asking bigger questions about life. So I think it's been both. Maybe I was born a little bit with it, uh, like many of us, but also some incidents and people in my life directed me toward wondering more about life's bigger picture, which led, of course, to the subtitle of my new book, The True Story of My Spiritual Quest. Yeah. Yeah, I've wondered about that because, you know, talk about collecting quotes. I was the guy in my university. I was in a fraternity, but I was the only guy. I had quotes all over my walls. Hmm. My dorm room was covered in, in inspirational quotes. None of my other friends had those, right? But I also had meant, I had, you know, I met, I, my, I mean, my mother, who I'm going to talk about here in just a moment, because she said something to me that was, a th that was a theme in Way of the Peaceful Warrior. She said it a few years before I read Peaceful Warrior. So I've had mentors, I had my mother, my stepmother, these people that came into my life with these, these questions or these, these, these directions or you know, hints at something that drove, that sort of lit, lit a spark or maybe perhaps they turned a spark into a flame that I ran with. So nature and nurture, I kind of, yeah. I'm with you. I think I'm with you on that. So I was mentioning my mom, one, one theme that you explore throughout um, your writing and your, your particularly in Way of the Peaceful Warrior, that's always been precious to me, Dan, as, a, as an overthinker. I am an overthinker. My own mom told me once that I think too much. And your Way of the Peaceful Warrior was the first time I had seen in a story, beautifully crafted story, where stop thinking and jump was just was central to the narrative. And I know you, you tell a few stories in your memoir about when you were young, jumping off the roof of a house, right, into a sand gravel pit at the, at the uh, pleading or the invitation or the challenge of your older brother <laughs> or the older, older kid in the neighborhood. Um, a few examples like that. And, and of course, in Way of the Peaceful Warrior, two iconic examples of, uh, of, of, of Socrates tossing the young athlete off the bridge and then the shower scene where he's just dripping water that that image dan has stayed with me for a lifetime in the shower just the water dripping off his body and his presence so just enwrapped enveloped in the moment but here's the thing and this is what i want this is the question that i have for you because i know that you also have had a journey with that distinction right even in your memoir you say well I'm, I'm married at I think 21 did you marry you married your first wife at 21 mm -hmm. and even in the memoir you acknowledge that maybe that's not always the best <laughs> to stop thinking and jump exactly right, right. so my, here's my question for you how has this idea or this practice how has this evolved both in you and for you over your lifetime well, first, I'd like to uh, comment based on what you said about you're an overthinker. I, uh, I have a daughter who, who tends to think a lot deeply about things. Whether you'd call it overthinking, I don't know, but she also processes things deeply, and I expect you do too. So what we call overthinking, uh, at least you're self-aware enough to, to notice that there's a balance somewhere. You know that saying, you don't want to think without acting or act without thinking. So uh, there are times to do both. But in that incident you relate from, from my new book, um, it, it did become a meme. It did become a kind of a mission idea that served me well in gymnastics uh, and doing fearful things that I knew I could do, which, which raises another question about fear. You know, you can't teach something called the peaceful warrior's way, which I do, without addressing the issue of fear. And when you know fear as the saying goes fear can be a wonderful servant uh, save our life at times uh, we have that instinct but also it can be a, a terrible master um, 
And when people are afraid of something objective that could injure or kill them physically, then fear may be uh, an important message uh, from, say, our inner knower about taking precautions, avoiding a situation, being alert, uh, preparing well, that sort of thing. But if our fear as men, as people, um, if our fear is subjective, that is, we're afraid of looking foolish or being embarrassed or wondering what people will think about what we do, those things don't break bones. You know, that's the time you cut through the fear like a sword and just do it anyway. That's when you stop thinking and jump. But if there is this physical risk, then it's a good sign to be afraid. You know, Customato, a boxing coach, once said, heroes and cowards feel exactly the same fear. They just respond differently. So, you know, I noticed through a lot, through so much of your work over your lifetime, including what you've studied, but also what you teach. A lot of what I, what I garner from, 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 particularly from reading your memoir, is that so much of your training, that, again, that you did with, for, with and for yourself, and that you have trained for others, like the knife fighting. I was really intrigued by the, the knife fighting exercise that you both studied and taught, uh, I think in the sort of latter half or at least after your 30s, I think, and beyond. And it was really fascinating to me. Uh, even your wife did that training with you, um, with one of the, your teachers, and how it seemed to be designed to bring you so present into the moment such that your mind is not in the way trying to discern, well, should I get out of the way or shouldn't I? <laughs> Your body is just moving. Mm -hmm. I, I get that, that in the moment, something is, you know, someone's coming at me with a gun or a saber tooth tiger, God forbid they should come back. It is 20, it is the 2020s, so that could happen. But what about, you know, the decision to make a big life change? You know, my wife and I just went through a kind of a, a very difficult time for the last year in deciding to move out of California. We, we rode a wild roller coaster on that ride for various reasons, which I won't go into here, but there was no stop thinking and jump, even though there was no death involved. I mean, nothing was going to kill us necessarily, but it was a massive decision and it was very painful and scary at times for both of us for different reasons. And now here we are. How would you orient towards, how do you orient towards big life decisions like that, that are so complex, we can't possibly know what the outcome is going to be, what the consequences are going to be, and right. yet so much fear arises. And it's not an urgent decision, like I need to make it right now, but, it, but it, you know, how, how do you orient towards that? Well, yeah, again, another uh, excellent topic, I think, because uh, we're talking about decision-making and fears or uncertainties around that. Um, you know, so many of us uh, have trouble making decisions, we think. Not all decisions. We don't have trouble really choosing which breakfast cereal to pick at the, at the supermarket. Mm -hmm. But when it becomes a big decision, like whether to move our belongings and ourselves to another area, um, uh, these kinds of decisions, uh, sometimes I teach a form of time travel using our imagination that helps to make a more fully educated, intuitive decision, uh, rather than relying entirely on one side of our brain, you know, to see what's logical or reasonable. But so many of us try to make a decision too soon, for example. Uh, it's like trying to walk down the street in New York City and decide which uh, foot to use to step off the curb when you're only halfway down the block. So when we have to make the decision, uh, it's in front of us and, and immediate. That's the best time uh, to make those kinds of decisions. In, in one of my little books called The Laws of Spirit, this ageless sage in, in, the, in the mountains, uh, in this little parable, teaches me the law of choices. What happens? We, get, we come to a fork in the road. And she says, which way do you want, to, which direction do you want to take, the right fork or the left? And I look and I go, hmm. This direction looks uh, into a forested area. It looks interesting, but maybe it's unpredictable. This other one is up over a rocky grade. Now that's going to be a steep climb, but you can see where you're going. Which one should I do? And I said, you know, I'm going to choose the rocky grade. And I pointed and she said, thank you. Uh, now, please uh, make your decision. And I went, 
no, maybe you didn't hear me. I'm going to go this way. And she said, yes, please. Now I'm waiting for your choice. <laughs> and I, I just didn't get it. So I just started walking and she said, ah, thank you. Because we don't actually make a decision in our head. We make a decision when we pack up and get ready to go and buy our tickets or get a map, uh, you know, of, and rent where we're going or buy it something. Our actions make choices for us, not up in our heads. Otherwise, we go back and forth, back and forth. So decision making is one of those life skills. You know, when I was young, I was focused on talent for sports. Uh, I was a, a young athlete. I was a gymnast, uh, world class uh, in that arena, a trampolinist and so on. And then I became a coach at Stanford University, and uh, which I write about in the memoir, mm -hmm. uh, which is my first form of spiritual training, actually, in the realm of sports. Um, but during that time, I was focused on how I could improve the athlete's talent in terms of being able to learn easier and faster and rise to higher levels. And I created some exercises, not just to increase strength and flexibility and stamina, which are parts of physical talent, but also coordination, rhythm, timing, balance, reflex speed. And my theories worked out in practice. The, uh, the team went from the bottom of our conference to one of the top three teams in the nation in about three and a half years. And I trained the top US Olympian. So my theories did work in practice. But at the same time, I was going through some bigger questions in my life. And I realized being able to do the skills of gymnastics, somersaults and handstands, really didn't help me much when I went out on a date <laughs> or when I got married or had children, dealt with financial issues and so on. So that's when I started asking bigger questions. How can we create talent, uh, not just for sport, but for life, for living, for everyday life? What life skills do we need to learn? And the reason I'm going into this uh, apparent regression is because decision-making is one of those life skills that we don't learn in school necessarily. Daily life has to teach us that uh, through confronting our own decisions and realizing that you can apply the spiritual law or the natural law of faith, F-A-I-T-H, to this kind of question. And faith tells us, faith is the, the courage to live as if every decision we make is for our highest good and learning. Do I know that's true? No, I don't. We might make a decision that makes life much harder for us in retrospect, but maybe that hardness is for some spiritual weight training. So it develops us. So that's what I have to say on that topic of making decisions. Yeah. Well, so, oh, this is, I, I love this is, this is a little, we'll take a little juicy, little juicy dive here because, you know, I'm, I'm 47. I didn't meet my wife till I was 41. I got really good at making decisions, choices. Um, I think I did. Anyway, I feel really good about my capacity to make make interesting choices for most of from throughout my life. Mm -hmm. And then I got married at forty one, and now all of a sudden, I'm I'm in a system with another person. I'm creating a world with another human being who has her own decision making process, which is vastly different than mine. <laughs> So and and in fact, you know, I think that's what was 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 so challenging for us this past year. It, if I would have made the decision, it would have just been so easy for me. Yeah, You're some so things would have come up, but now I'm incorporating another being and her decision process and whoa, what a whole new layer of complexity is that. You said something in your acknowledgments of your book that 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 that, that touched me and speaks to me and I can relate to in, this, in a similar way about your wife, Joy. In your acknowledgement, let's see, you said she was your muse, role model, north star, and true compass. Let's, let's talk about this a little bit because a lot of our listeners, and yes, this podcast, you know, I designed this for men, but I know women are listening and people who are just curious about our conversation. So, but this is a juicy one. Because I think a lot of men particularly struggle with how do I follow my North Star when, you know, my intimate partner's sort of pointing in a different direction. Yeah. When we shift from I to we, mm. 
then we weigh, uh, we weigh both views, both people's views. If they have the same uh, view, there's no problem at all. If they have the same conclusion, whatever their process is, uh, if they reach the same conclusion. Now, Joe and I have been married 46 years now. Mm, congratulations. Um, and, and thank you. Yes. And, and she uh, definitely is my North Star. She has an extraordinary sense of discernment. And uh, so sometimes part of uh, our relationship is recognizing her strength in this area. For example, if one of us is better at math, I'm going to defer to the one, you know, who's better at math if we're figuring something out. And she has a very good uh, instincts. Uh, and sometimes we play off each other. Uh, she'll say something and I'll recognize whether that feels right or not once I hear it. And the same thing she might do. So when we have different views, obviously, we uh, discuss it. I mean, that's all we can do. You know, there's a, a, funny, a funny story about uh, a Sufi wise man named Mullah Nasruddin, who entered the marketplace one day and saw two men with diametrically opposed ideas that were shaking their fists at each other, about to come to blows. And there was a group of people gathered around them naturally at all the commotion. And one of them saw Nasruddin and said, he will know, he's a wise man, he'll know what's right. So Nasruddin came up and said to one of the combatants, um, okay, tell me your side, what's your story? And the guy, he explained his view and Nasruddin immediately said, you're right, clearly. But the second man said, wait, that's not fair. You haven't heard my side yet. So Nasruddin turned to him and said, well, what's, what's your view? Go ahead. And he told him his view and Nasruddin said, oh, I'd have to say you're right. And a bystander said, Mula, they can't both be right. And he scratched his head and said, you know what? You're right. So we're all right from our own viewpoint. Uh -huh. yeah. And that's part of marriage. I mean, relationships, working it out. Who wants it more, for example? That gives them an extra vote. Who, who doesn't care quite as much about the situation? So we work it out because it's a we now. You know, there, someone told me once there was a, a marriage ceremony about two people go, go into the marriage ceremony, each carrying a candle, a lit candle, which is a kind of a beautiful image. And then they come together and use both their flames together to light a third flame which is a wonderful ritual. Both their flames come together. But you know what they did in this ceremony? Then they each blew out their own flame. That seems crazy to me because there's still me and a you and also a we. There are three parties involved. So we work things out. You know, it took me 25 years to realize my wife was not criticizing me. Mm. She was improving me. Mm. Oh, man. <laughs> I'm sorry she had to wait so long. But yeah, at least, that, that at least was, she got that there. Was, that was her job description. So I don't have any uh, uh, bumper sticker wisdom for what do you do when you and your spouse or friend or partner disagree about something. You work it out. Find out who wants it more, and you listen to each other, and then you come to sometimes will go to the movie she wants to go to, and sometimes the one I want to go to. You know, it works out that way. So. Well, well, I reflect on our, our year of, of going through this experience, and it was very painful at times. And, you know, I've, I've worked with couples. I've coached couples since for about eight, eight, nine years now. And that's one of the things that I've noted. Obviously, it's easier to see in others, but I've been on this same journey myself, is moving from the I to the we system, you know, the one person to the two person system. Yeah. And I look at this year we went through and, you know, we've been together six years now. It's a long time and also not at all a long time. And there was, this was a massive, there was so much I coming up for both of us. But we also, you know, I, I saw, I see how both of us were, were in our, in the dance that we do. We were, you know, we were guided to, to go gather information. You know, we came to different places to see, well, could we live here? Could we go there? We, mm -hmm. you know, we, the, 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 you know, the stubborn little inner child of the eye came out and said, no, I'm not leaving. You know, I'm not leaving at all. And we had to sit in that for a little while and dance with that. And I think all of it, all of it led us to that when, when, when we finally were clear about what, where to go and when to go, we were both in, we were both on the same page. You know, because we, we were enrolled in we, 
not neither one. It was not she didn't my and you know my wife didn't do it for me. I mean she did, but she also didn't. I would refuse to have allowed her to do it for me because that would have been a disaster probably. Yeah, well, there there is a bigger question too. People have asked me after forty six years, Dan, what what do you owe this longevity in your relationship for? That's better now than it ever was. Um, and I believe it's because from the start, we were friends. We built a friendship. And marriages have to be built like a house, as you know. And friendship is most important, more than sex, more than communication even, which are two other important variables. But if you're friends, if you have each other's backs, there will be times where you want to do what, you're, what will help you make your spouse happy. And she will want to do yeah. what makes you happy. Not yeah. with resentment. Yeah. Not, okay, I surrender, and then I'll resent it from now on. No. But actually, because you want to do it. Uh, we're not, we don't get married to, to have a competitor. You know, We don't want to compete. And who's getting the most out of the relationship? Who's putting the most into the relationship? That, down that path is a rabbit hole that leads to not good things. So when, when you have each other's back and you, you, you develop a friendship, then you've, you've got something that can build on for decades. Yeah, no doubt, no doubt. And that, yeah. that, that is a saving grace of our, you know, we're both strong personalities and, and, and we laugh so much together. You know, we oh, just, we just, we, it, it's that, that, that's, it's so, so helpful to just be friends and laugh and yeah, everything else is icing. I want to switch up a little bit here because you also explored something and you've had a lot of experience in your in your lifetime of working with various teachers that I've also experienced that is that has caused me great concern. And it's this theme of finding the balance between trusting a teacher, receiving guidance from them, instruction, modeling them, all of that, you know, really getting the gifts that they have to offer while also reserving some part of you that can say no to what they're either wanting for you or from you, right? Or staying awake to or perhaps cautious of the limitations of their humanity. You know, I had this experience just a couple weeks ago at, a, at, a, at, a, at an event I went to with 40 men. I wasn't leading this. I was just there as a, as a guest of, some, of a friend. Mm-hmm. And the teacher said... I need your enrollment right now before we get going. I'm, I want your enrollment. Everyone raise your hand. I'm going to push you to your fullest. I am going to, and I need your enrollment right now. You're going to, I don't care how hard we go, blah, blah, blah. You know, the, that, that, that sort of ethos. And everyone, ra- we all raised our hands. You know, we're men. That's, we, that's, that's what we do. And I said out loud in front of 40 men, uh, I, I need you to know that I always reserve the right to say no. Good for you. And he looked at me. It, it stopped him. And he looked at me and he said, well, you'll get a chance to work through that today. <laughs> <laughs> so I repeated with my hand raised, okay, and I still always reserve the right to say no. And I had a man come up to me afterwards and thank me for that. Dan, that's, that's, that reservation was born of painful experience of myself being enrolled in things and where teachers I saw became abusive, bought into their own mm-hmm. self-adulation or their own illusion of, of grandeur and all of that. And you experienced that in spades mm-hmm. in, in your lifetime. So I'd love to, for you to speak about that a little bit. And, and, the, and the, 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 two, the sort of two questions I'd love to explore with you is like, how, how do you see that you navigated this precarious balance? And what would you, what do you recommend people watch out for? When it sure. comes to looking for a spiritual teacher, these days it's all about the coaches. Coaches, the coaching world is rampant. Yeah, a lot of coaches. Yeah. Well, let me provide some context uh, in the new memoir, in Peaceful Heart Warrior Spirit. I begin with foundational elements growing up as a kid, and actually the book starts with uh, you know up in the air and upside down at the World Trampoline Championships in London, uh, as as you read. But I go on to describe my time over a 20-year period with four different, radically different mentors. Now, we've all had mentors and role models in our lives, teachers who we remember from elementary, middle, or high school or college. But these four mentors were, I worked with deeply, and they influenced my life and teachings. And to come back to your question about trust, 
one of the basic tenets of the approach to living I finally began to teach after 20 years, uh, I call the Peaceful Warrior's Way. One of the basic tenets is there is no best teacher, no best book, no best philosophy, religion, uh, exercise system, diet. There's only the best for each of us at a given time of our life. Life is an experiment. We have to find out what works for us. Our story is like none on the planet. Neither your story nor mine is duplicated exactly by anyone. So it's our treasure. It's like a novel being written. We have to respect that story. And in fact, I often remind people, stop comparing yourself to other people. You know, many young people are really depressed these days because they see everyone else on Facebook or Snapchat or Instagram or, or whatever, uh, apparently having the time of their lives. They're showing their best side, their best self, and they go, oh, I'm falling short. Uh, you know, FOMO, fear of missing out. They're, and because they're comparing themselves. And as soon as we do that, we're either going to feel superior or inferior. You know, and as a young coach, I learned that when I taught backflips, for example, back somersaults, some people learn them faster than other people. But those who took longer to learn them often learn them better than those who learn them faster. So that's why we have to respect our own process of learning and living. And so that's, that's what I would say. Um, in the guru's community, now the second mentor I had was called, I call him the guru. And it was an, an intense time of falling short, of failing the high expectations he set. Um, and it wasn't a place to learn self-trust. It was a, a way to, to uh, submit to this divine authority. He wasn't a charlatan. He was a really wise teacher. Nonetheless, we have to always check everything we hear or learn against our inner knower. Because even though it may be true in some sense, what we're hearing, it may not be true for us. It may not work for us. And you know, it's funny, uh, you're bringing up the question about, I always reserve the right to say no, Brian, because I tell people in some of my seminars, there are only two things you, you know, I, we do a lot of exercises. I go, okay, everybody get up and we'll do this exercise. And I say, look, you should know, you can sit it out. There's no peer pressure or pressure from me to have to do what I'm suggesting. Uh, I'm here to serve you, not the other way around. And so the only two things you have to do in life, you have to die someday and you have to live until you die. But all the rest we make up mm -hmm. through our own decisions. No one holds a gun to us, forces us to do anything. This is our choices. And we want to do what's best for us, whether we're a, 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 an I or a we. We have to find out what works best for us and respect that. And that maybe it's long-winded, but at least it'll anchor it with people better, these reminders and perspectives about self-trust, which I had to learn. And it, was, it wasn't until I met the warrior priest, the, man, the third mentor of the four I describe in the book, that I started remembering. You know, he called himself a cheerleader to the soul. And I started remembering my own, uh, respecting my own trust and my own values, needs, and, and purposes and goals. So each of us needs that reminder. Uh, otherwise, we're busy monitoring the God of opinion. Yeah. So I, I think, again, you know, specifically in men, men's work, there is, there is this, this old masculine ideal of, of, you know, we're going to reach the stars. We're going to break all our limitations. You know, freedom is the ultimate masculine value. And, and by the way, that teacher, uh, Adida or Bubba Frijan, I've read some of his materials, you know, in the in in the years of my own study, and wow, that stuff is intense. Yeah, <laughs> it is yes. rich it and intense. And whoa, what wisdom? What what I don't know? Insight? What would you offer to the man who's who finds himself? You know, I, I run men's groups. I lead men's groups. I'm so I'm constantly reminding men that 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 you you control your fate here, not me. Similarly, like I want men to know they have permission to say no to me. I am such a stand for that because I've been hurt myself by teachers. My wife is traumatized by teachers who did not give her permission to say no. Right. So I am such a stand for that. I learned that the hard way. And I still 
like in that in that workshop I went to the other day, like I still want to push myself. I still want to stretch myself. I'm I'm exploring. I'm I'm exploring new areas and domains and and stretching my body and all these things. So, you know, what what would you say to a man that's that is going to find himself in a situation like this? How does he navigate that? What would you urge him or invite him to look out for, to pay attention to? So that he doesn't hand over his agency to someone who doesn't have his best interests in mind. Well, clearly, as you put it that way, most men go, you know, will go, yeah, I shouldn't hand over my agency, my my own mm-hmm. sense of self to someone else. Actually, it was the guru himself who reminded us that there are three fundamental approaches to spiritual life, to our own quest, our own goals. And they correspond to the three phases of human life, childhood, adolescence, and adulthood, or maturity, presumably. And he said, in the childhood of our spiritual quest, what do children seek? They need a strong parent figure to guide them, protect them, to project onto them ideals, high ideals in their power, and to uh, set limits for them and to tell them what to do. Children, young children need that. Uh, They thrive on restrictions and limits and routines and so on. So there's nothing wrong with the childhood of our spiritual life, of people who seek a big parent figure, uh, any more than there's something wrong with childhood. But eventually we have to grow through it and grow out of it. And when we do, we enter what's called adolescence, which is a, a, a fiery stage because adolescents need to, for a time, throw off everything they've been taught or learned to find their own values that suits them in their circumstance, in their life. So often they, it's, they go into rejecting authority and assuming all teachers and authority figures are charlatans, uh, deluded, and only they know what's best for them. It's a kind of uh, know-it-all ignorance in, in a way, but they have to go through that phase. and We all go through it. And many people into adulthood are still adolescents going, I'm only going to want what I want from me and I know best and so on. And I want freedom to do what I want and so on. And that's an adolescent approach, of course. It's not thinking about the highest good of all concerned. But eventually, some of us may actually mature into adulthood where we find wisdom uh, and find spirit wherever in, in unexpected places. You know that saying, when the student is ready, the teacher appears. We've all heard that. But many people misunderstand that. They think it means when the student has suffered enough or somehow deserving enough, a teacher like Socrates will appear to guide them or kick them up the path. But I believe what that statement means is that when the student is ready or really paying attention, the teacher appears everywhere. Mm. So when there are human teachers, we have to be aware and that you know that a repeated theme in the new book is that all teachers are human and all humans have flaws and foibles, including myself, hopefully the small ones. And I have a wife who'll kick my butt if I'm, if I wander from the straight and narrow. Yeah. That's a, that's definitely a good role of a, of a wife for me. But it's good. It's good to keep that in mind. And, and um, you know, sure we can listen to teachers and, and be guided by them and their wisdom, but always again, keep our BS meter tuned up, and refined and in good order and remember to trust our inner knower check it out against our inner knower yeah one of the things i really enjoyed reading through your memoir was also all of the maps you love maps you're you're a map lover as i am a map lover i I, you've created maps you know i've created i've got a i've got a map everyone you know any 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 good teacher has a map (laughs) and um you know, from your various teachers, like in your Erica training, there was the nine domains of consciousness, right? Bubba Frijan had his seven stages of life. You just shared another of the maps, the childhood, adulthood, or childhood, adolescence, adulthood, and the way we right. orient towards teachers and authorities and all that. And yet, and again, I can, again, I'm, I'm 47, so I'm, I'm entering a certain stage of life. Uh, after decades of, of exploration and you know getting love finding maps and loving maps and and yet you know I was really touched by how you're you write about returning or, or, or arriving I don't know if that's the right language but but coming into this place of simple living 
And I would love for you to talk a little bit about this particular arc of your journey. This, you know, what is the role of maps, and if why do we need them if we're just going to throw them away someday, or it, maybe we don't throw them away? But I just I'm just really curious about that that the arc of your journey. Yeah, and I think your listeners, your viewers, understand what we mean by maps or models. They're a schema. There are ways to observe ourselves and, and to structure, to make some sense of order and semblance of the apparent chaos of everyday life, entropy, and just things happening at random. And there are structures. And scientists and mystics uh, are seeking the same sense of understanding uh, the universe, but they use different methods of inquiry. Uh, so, uh, Yes, I learned many maps in the Arika training with Oscar Ichazo, the professor, the first of my mentors, who had a technique-oriented approach to doing all these spiritual exercises in order to grow, and also the models, of levels of consciousness, the, the ways we release stress. These are ways to increase self-knowledge. Now, we all agree that self-knowledge is useful because if we don't know ourselves, we make the right decision for the wrong person, the one we thought we were. So the more we know ourselves, what are my talents? What are my values? What am I, what am I actually interested in? The better decisions we make for ourselves. And so maps and models are there for us to use. But as Ken Kais used to say, the map is not the territory. It's only a map. It's a way of looking at our lives. But uh, with a map, you still have to make the journey. And if life is a journey, you know, the maps can be useful. They point us in a direction uh, and give us some guidelines. But ultimately, as you pointed out, and I think the, the core of your question is when I finally met the sage, the fourth uh, mentor, when I was finally ready, I suppose, to meet him, I came back down to earth from all the maps and models and exercises and the inner work that I had been doing. He started pointing out some simple, fundamental things of reality. For example, considering what we can and can't control by our will. Considering things that, for example, we cannot control the outcomes in our life. Anybody who says, I guarantee success, depends how they define success, but we can't control whether we make a putt every time or find success or, or win at a game or uh, find success in business, for example. Um, but we can control our efforts. That is within our control. And by making a good effort over time, we vastly increase the odds of getting our desired goal over not making the effort. So the sage reminded us, reminded me to observe reality. And he asked, can you control your emotions? That's a big one. Because many of us have grown up in a psychological uh, climate of opinion, where we assume, most of us assume still, that we need to fix our insides in order to live wisely and well. We need to have a quiet mind or positive thoughts, or we need to have just the right emotions like confidence and courage and love and happiness and kindness. If we have all the, we feel grateful. If we feel this and feel that, then we can live well. But the sage pointed out, and we really don't have direct control over what emotions pass through us, like changing weather. We don't really have direct control over thoughts that appear in our awareness. We call them random thoughts, sometimes positive, sometimes negative. But what we can control is what we actually do, how we move our arms and legs, the words we say, that's an action speaking. And so he brought me back to focusing on the, the most important question in life is, what do I need to do right now? I know my purpose right in this moment, speaking with you, you know your purpose. So even though we may not know our long-term life cosmic purpose, we can know our purpose in this moment. So my work has turned a lot, this approach to living the peaceful warrior's way is a lot about focusing on our purpose and also being aware of our indebtedness to other people who support us in our lives. So this is some of the teachings of the sage who brought me back down to earth and helped me live with my head in the clouds, but my feet on the ground. I was smiling as you were telling the story uh, about meeting this teacher who, uh, the sage, right? 
who was sort of bringing you back into this place of, of sort of just simple living again. And, and I was, I'm smiling because I love how you included little excerpts, little, little almost like journal entries from your wife remembering in your book, in your memoir, remembering these other parts of sort of giving her take <laughs> on certain things. Yeah. And I remember reading how she felt she, to her, what this sage was teaching was just obvious. There's a sort of reflection of hers. Like, I don't know why Dan had to, it just seemed obvious to me, but she always supported you when you found a new teacher and, and, and her sort of understanding or her perspective was that it wasn't that Dan was so much trying to go learn what this teacher wanted to teach, but that Dan was trying, wanting to understand how he views the world, how he orients in, in a sense towards the world. And that was really just a deepening perhaps of your own capacity or your own stepping into elderhood and your own, um, anyway, I just loved your wife's uh, reflections. My, my wife too. She is an incredibly discerning woman. I don't, uh, who is, you know, North star role model, all of that. So I, I very much can relate to that that dynamic. It's a beautiful thing, uh, and and I've struggled at times, resisted my wife's influence, and yet it is it has always been an excellent. It has always been a beautiful thing when I've allowed her to influence me. Yeah, well, I can I can definitely relate on a personal level to that as well. You know, I should have said this at the beginning of our time together that that over the years, over the decades, I, I don't teach men. I don't teach women. I teach people. And yes, there are things in common and things different in our approaches among individuals and even groups. And, and for men, though, it's like, uh, I'm supposed to be the leader. I'm the alpha. You know, I'm the guy. I'm, I'm, that's what I'm supposed to be. We, we think we're supposed to be a lot of things. We're just supposed to be a person, a soul growing through life in our own, in our own body, whatever that feels like to us. So uh, in my view, my wife is probably an older soul than I am. And I, I've been playing catch up, just trying to keep up with her. Uh, and, and it's face losing. Uh, it's humbling. But that's, that's my reality I've discovered over, over time. And it wasn't as if she really, she was raising two, to our two daughters at the time. We have three daughters, one from my previous marriage. But um, two of the daughters from our marriage, she was busy raising them. That's another reason. She couldn't do that 10-day certification training that I took with the sage. Uh, and, and I dove deep into his work. So she doesn't presume to really understand it as well as I do, because I studied it in depth, read all the books, and did the work. And, and yet, uh, she, we're both high-functioning people. And so she saw his work about how to function well in life, despite changing emotions and so on. Um, so yeah, I think that word obvious is going to come back to haunt her, but I will say this, uh, I wrote, I wrote this book in nine separate drafts. I turned a five bloated 500 page hedge, unruly hedge of a book into a bonsai, 220 page bonsai, cutting almost 300 pages. And she read through every single draft and around the seventh draft, she said, you know, Dan, I have a little different perspective than you do. What if I weighed in and, and wrote a few commentaries. I went, that's a great idea. So she did. And uh, most people really enjoy reading her, her take and her perspective on our time together. Yeah, I've really enjoyed that. Well, the, the book is, it was a very, very uh, ease-filled read and, and I really uh, enjoyed it. And I have one more question for you and then we'll, we'll conclude our conversation. Um, question I ask many of my guests and, and it is, again, it's oriented towards men. You can answer this however you want. What do you believe or see as the biggest challenge facing men today? And what wisdom could you offer in the face of it? Well, per my earlier comments, I would have to translate that in my mind to what is the biggest challenge humans are facing today, because it's not really different for men and women. And the biggest challenge and our, our survival as human beings, I believe, rests upon this one question. Can we turn comp the competitive mind into collaborative mind? Can we shift from what's in it for me or what do I prefer and want to what's for the highest good of all concerned? And this is not relinquishing our individuality and our human right to pursue happiness in our own way and follow our needs and talents and values. 
but we also have to think about what is for the highest good seven generations from now. What is going to help most people on the planet? Because this short-term self-interest in politics, you know, greed and what's in it for me, and will I get reelected, and so on, eventually we'll have to make that major shift. If we don't, we may not survive as a species. The Earth is going to be continuing to change. And, and that's the big question in my view. And, and I've known this for the last 40 years. I think that is a profound question. And I've seen many ways how that, that question, that inquiry shows up just in my life as a, as an individual in the ways I've done my work, et cetera. So that, you know, that's a really beautiful question. Um, I wonder, could you offer a practice perhaps that our listeners could do for even just the next seven days that might be an extension of that question or, or a way of, of confronting that question or, or living. Cause it's, you said it's survival of our species. Well, what can we, is there something simple yeah. you might offer? You know, when I go on the subway here in New York City, people don't necessarily look friendly. Often they're tired, they're distracted, they're looking at their phones, they look serious. But you know, it's funny, you'll go up and ask someone a direction, they will just lighten up and talk to you and they're happy to give directions, that sort of thing. But what I do is when I see people who seem so different from me, I wonder, this is the practice, look at them, imagine them when they were uh, a toddler, or when they're two years old, learning about life and going through childhood illnesses and wondering and in fear and trying to figure it all out, it gives us more compassion because until we feel that sense of unity with other people in the world, then all my words just like dross, they're just you know saying what's for the highest good of all concerned. But if we feel one with all concerned, you know what I loved about the movie Independence Day? It was a, you know, a schlocky but fun sci-fi movie. But what the profound message in that was when these aliens, another other came from outer space, suddenly everyone on the planet with all our apparent differences were one. We were all humanity defending itself. And that's what happened through that alien and so-called alien invasion from outer space. And if we could just remember that, there were moments of it after 9-11, there are moments of it after big tragedies where people are unified, we're all together, we can empathize. So I, I would say the practice is just remembering there's a human being like me. Love has been defined as recognizing the same consciousness in others as in ourselves. And, and I know that's a big kind of broad exercise, but just remembering now and then that that person who seems so different, that other, you know, it's the same light shining through all our billions of eyes. And we call it consciousness or awareness and ultimately who we all are. So that's, that's what I would say. And maybe I can end briefly with, with a quick story. Aldous Huxley was in hospice, the author, Aldous Huxley, Brave New World. And his friend, Houston Smith, said all this, you've studied the global heritage of, of spiritual traditions. Is there any way to summarize all that you've learned? And Aldous said, I'm a little embarrassed to say, I can probably summarize it all in about six words. Try to be a little kinder. And maybe that's a practice we can get our, our hearts yeah. around and our heads around. Well, Dan, thank you so much. It's been a true honor. I really appreciate you dancing with me in this conversation. And where can people get your new memoir and, and, and learn more about what you're up to right now? Well, if anyone who's curious can drop by peacefulwarrior.com. There's a free life purpose calculator on the first page. They'll see. They might enjoy that. Um, yes, peacefulwarrior.com. And, and that's the one stop uh, they can go to. Dan, thank you so much. It's been an honor, sir. My pleasure, really. Thank you so much for listening, and thank you again to Dan Millman. Find Dan and his new memoir at peacefulwarrior.com. Of course, this link and any additional resources will be in the show notes at brianreeves.com slash podcast. And again, remember, my book, Choose Her Every Day or Leave Her, a guide for your transformational journey through the fires of love and intimacy for men and women, 
is now available online everywhere. If you pick that book up, please feel free to reach out to me and let me know what it stirs in you. I love hearing what people experience with Choose Her Every Day or Leave Her. And if you were served by this conversation, please write a review on your favorite podcast app. Your words genuinely can make a difference for anyone else deciding what to listen to and whether to listen to this podcast. So please write a review. I put a lot of work into these episodes. I don't get paid for these. Uh, In fact, I spend a lot of money and time and energy and you simply leaving a review would uh, be a great support to this podcast. And don't forget to subscribe yourself while you're at it. I'm your thriving life and relationship coach, Brian Reeves, Brian with a Y Reeves. Until soon, keep your head up, your breath relaxed, and your thoughts inspired. Thank you.